It's really hard to believe that it's been 15 years since my grandfather, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, the Mashkiach, Zechitzarab Kodesh was Nifter. I have very vivid memories from the days preceding his passing. I was fortunate enough to have spent the last Lel HaSeder, the last Seder night, the last first night of Pesach with him two days before he was Nifter on the first day of Cholomoyed in 2005. And it's surreal to think about it, to remember seeing the whole city plastered with signs of his passing, to hear the Levaya, the funeral announcements on the on the roving cars going through the city, and of course to be there by the funeral, to be there by the Levaya, to see the the stores, these thousands, tens of thousands of people participating in this. Of course, it uh, evokes a lot of very deep memories. Now in Yerushalayim, there's a minute, there's a custom of the Chavar Kaddish, of the burial society, that they don't allow any of the direct descendants of the Nifter, of the deceased, to participate in the funeral, to participate in the Levaya. And I remember we were sitting there, you know, me and some of my siblings and a bunch of our cousins, after the Levaya had left, and we were reminiscing, we were talking about Saba, we were talking about our grandfather, and, and just just reflecting on, on his patira, on his passing. And I remember one of my cousins said an astonishing idea that's lived with me ever since. He quoted the Gemara. The Gemara tells us in the book of Yoma, that Flamen Hamid Bays, the Gemara says, Ani ve'ashir ve'rasha ba'iladin. There's going to be three people that come to judgment before the Almighty. And each one of them is going to be interrogated. And they're going to ask the Ani, they're going to ask the poor person, why didn't you study Torah? And he's going to respond, well, I was so poor. I was so destitute. I had no money. I had no food for my family. I was so busy being poor and dealing with that challenge. I had no time to learn. I had no time to study. And they're going to say to him, were you poorer? Were you more destitute than Hillel? And he gives a story how poor Hillel was. He would take his daily income, divide it in half. Half of it would go for his family's needs. and The other half would go to pay the pittance needed to enter the base medris to enter the house of study. Hillel is poorer than you. Nevertheless, he found time to learn. He found time to study. The rich person comes in and they'll ask him, well, why didn't you study Torah? And he's going to say, well, I was so busy. I had such a company, such a business, so much finances, so much dealings, so much financial dealings. I was too preoccupied with my wealth. I had no time to learn. And they're going to say to him, you know what? There was a Tana, or Belazah ben Kharsam, who was much richer than you. He had a thousand ships on a thousand islands. Nevertheless, he became a great Torah scholar. And therefore, your excuse is also not valid. And finally, the Russia is going to be paraded in. Why didn't you learn? Why didn't you study? And you say, well, I was so consumed with my own beauty, and I was so consumed with sin, my Sahara overcame me, and that's why I had no time to learn. And they're going to say to him, were you more beautiful than Yosef? Did you suffer the Nisyonas, the challenges of Yosef? And it gives a description of what Yosef had to go through, had to endure to survive the seductions, the enticements of Aisha's Potiphar, of the wife of Potiphar. And the Gemara ends, the Talmud ends. Nimtza, Hillel Machaivis Aniim. Hillel's going to obligate the poor people. He's going to obviate their excuse. He's going to dispel 
they're its Jews, and therefore they're no longer going to have anything to stand on, and he's going to obligate them. The great rabbi who was very rich, he is going to obligate the people who are rich. They have no excuses of why they didn't study, why they didn't become great. And Yosef and Joseph, he is going to mechaev the Rishayim. So my cousin says something very profound. There's going to be a fourth person that comes before God. There's going to be a fourth person that comes to judgment. And the Almighty is going to ask him, why didn't you study? Why didn't you become a Torah scholar? Why didn't you make something great out of yourself? And he's going to say, I had no firm backing. I had no support. I had no rabbinic pedigree. I wasn't trained to become a Torah scholar. I wasn't reared. I wasn't encouraged. I wasn't coaxed to learn. And therefore, nothing pushed me from my youth. I didn't have that background that would lead someone to become a great Torah scholar. And they're going to say to him, says my cousin, they're going to say to him, did you have a weaker background than Harav Volbe, than Rabbi Wolbe, than Mashiach Zatzal? Did you have more obstacles to overcome to become great than he did? And the Almighty will delineate, the Almighty will list all the challenges that my grandfather had to become great. And it turns out that Saba, that our grandfather, is going to dispel the excuse of someone who says, I have no background, I have nothing that propelled me, there was nothing that was pushing me to become great, and therefore I didn't become great. Saba is going to dispel that excuse. And if you reflect on his life, it really raises an important question. How indeed did someone with such a scant background in Torah How did he become so big? How did he become so great? How did he become the de facto transmitter of Musser from before the war in Europe, from the great yeshivas in Europe before the war, to afterwards? How did he build great yeshivas? How did he write his magisterial works, his magisterial svarim? How did he become the quintessential Talmud, the quintessential student of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz? How did he mold legions of students of Talmidim, Gaonim, and Sadiqim? How indeed did my grandfather become so great? I think on his yard site, this is an important question to maybe ponder. And I think there's probably a lot of answers to this question. If you look at the introduction to Aleish Shurchelik Aleph, to the first volume that my grandfather wrote in 1966, it was published. He writes a tribute to his mother, Rosa Rifter, her name was. And he writes, quote, It's only thanks to her Messias Nefesh, only thanks to her self-sacrifice for his education, i.e. for the author's education, to fulfill mitzvos, to study Torah. That's the only reason why he achieved this level. A woman of rare beauty, of woman, a beauty of, of Midos, a woman of rare Yeres Hashem, fear of God, of pikchus, of, of insight, of yusurim, of suffering, he attributes his success, he attributes his greatness to his mother. And I think that was a theme in his life, that he would always be very humble to not ascribe any of his own successes to his own hard work. In fact, when I merited to learn in a yeshiva that was headed by some of his talmidim, and I was there in Israel, in Yerushalayim, 
at the latter years of his life, so the Mashtiach of our yeshiva was a close Talmud of my grandfather, he used to go visit his Rebbe, he used to go visit his teacher. And he would always inquire, you know, how are my grandchildren doing? And the Mashtiach would, I think, quite charitably say, well, they're doing really well. And my grandfather said, you know why? It's because their father, i.e. his son, his sandik, by his bris, was the chazanish. So the mashtiach of our yeshiva would say, well, what about you? What about their grandfather? No, 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 it's because it's all in the merit of, of others. I think that's a, an interesting way to look at it. That, you know, he was always someone who was deflecting, accepting credit for his own greatness. But if I could speculate, my own personal thoughts on this issue, how did my grandfather become so big? I think there's a theme that is strung throughout his life that maybe would give us an insight and a very valuable lesson how he became great and how we too perhaps could become great ourselves. And that is, he had an incredible knack of seizing spiritual opportunities. He was always ready to jump in whenever there was an opportunity, whenever there was some chance to do something great, to achieve something great. When it presented himself, he plunged in. He took the initiative, he pursued it, he took responsibility, and he did it. And there's many, many stories of this throughout his life. You know, when he was 16 years old, what do 16-year-old German kids, what, what are they into? You, you, you know, you imagine not, not a lot of great uh, works coming out of uh, German 16-year-olds. When he was 16, what did he do? He wrote a book in German on Avodos Hashem. And an amazing insight. A small, a small child, essentially, a young teenager, an adolescent, is taking the time to, to, to write down, to organize his thoughts, how do I do my Vodas Hashem properly? And he was someone also who ended up in yeshiva. And this was not something, a career path, if you will, that was envisioned for him, certainly not from his background, he goes to yeshiva. And then he goes to one yeshiva and he ends up in a second yeshiva, of course, the great Mir Yeshiva. This was all because he took initiative. And I think, you know, kind of studying his life, you see this appear again and again. During the war, for example, he spent eight years in neutral Sweden. And these years are some of the most formative years of his life. Now, he used to always tell us that Sweden is a country, is a place where Yeshiva Barchum would go and become corrupted almost overnight. You'd be, you have Tamil Chachamim, you have even rabbis, they would come there, and right away they would get ruined, they would get corrupted. He comes there, and the first thing he does, he opens a base Hamusar, he opens a shul. He takes the book that he had written previously as a teenager in German, he translates it into Swedish. He studies Swedish to be able to help, to be able to influence, to be able to teach the people around him. He translates it. He expands it in Swedish. And he himself testified that the thing that kept him strong to maintain the lessons of his teachers in Sweden was that every single day he studied Musar. Every single day without fail, he would take the lessons integrated into him by his teachers and deepen them and study them. And he writes in one of his books, he doesn't view this as any sort of uh, hubristic boastfulness, because it's the equivalent of someone saying, I survived a famine by eating bread. 
And I think, you know, if you examine this time, of course, the years of the Holocaust, there's this inferno engulfing European Jewry. And I think this presents a great opportunity. What are you going to do to help your Jewish brethren? What initiative are you going to take to make a difference? And when we look at his activism in Sweden, it's astonishing. He joins the Vadhatsala. He manages to secure hundreds of visas that saved yeshiva students, that saved yeshiva bachram. He's working night and day on a starvation diet to be able to help the Jews trapped in Europe. I just read this recently. He actually acquired 500 visas to come to Sweden, and he had sent them to Japan or, or China, where the Mir Yeshiva, where his, you know, his, uh, his brethren in the Yeshiva were, to get them to come to Sweden. They would have gone, but they were not allowed to use the Trans-Siberian Railroad once, once the Russians got involved in the war. And he serves as a liaison, connecting the patrons, the benefactors of the Mir Yeshiva in New York, in the United States, and the yeshiva that's trapped in, in Japan and Japanese-occupied Shanghai. You know, Japan and the United States are at war. There's no postal relationship. And the yeshiva can only subsist, can only survive thanks to fundraising dollars. And, of course, fundraising for yeshiva in China during the war is probably not that fruitful of an endeavor. So you have American people, primarily Bravom Kalmanovich, the yeshiva of the Mir in, in Flatbush in Brooklyn, He's raising millions of dollars, but he has no way to send it to Japan because there's no postal relationship. So he sends it to my grandfather in Sweden, and my grandfather repackages it and sends it to Japan. And again, we see him taking initiative, him taking an active role to try to help people. He used to tell over the story that after the war ended, of course, the whole, the whole Europe is replete with Jewish refugees with Concentration camp survivors, many of them, you know, very sick, obviously. And this also creates another opportunity. And there was one Rosh Hashanah where there was a giant refugee camp of, essentially it was a hospital, of, of sick Jewish survivors of the war. And they were all encamped someplace near where he was in, in Sweden and he said what he did, that Rosh Hashanah, he didn't with a minion. Many times throughout that eight years, there wasn't a minion to be had, even if he wanted it. But what he did was, he went from room to room with the shofar, blowing the shofar for all these sickly, uh, very sick, some of them even dying, patients and, and refugees. And he said, when he came back the second day of Rosh Hashanah, many of the people that he had blown chauffeur for on day one had already perished by day two. But I think maybe the episode that most embodies this attribute, this exemplary attribute of someone taking initiative is the founding of the school for Jewish girls and survivors in Lidingo, a suburb of Stockholm where he lived. He had found out that there were trainloads of, of concentration camp survivors that were being brought in on an ostensibly humanitarian initiative of the Swedish government. 
It turns out that the Swedish government had a, you know, they had a shirk crisis of their own. They had more, they had more boys than girls, and therefore they wanted to import a bunch of Jewish girls under the guise of uh, humanitarian concerns to be able to integrate them into the Swedish society. So my grandfather says, you know, there's a bunch of girls. Who knows? Maybe I can go and help them. So he travels and he arrives at this camp and he sees, as far as the eye could see, thousands of Jewish girls, some of them coming from the best, most prestigious rabbinic families in Europe. And they're here after going through veritable hell throughout the war. They're here now. And many of them have forgotten everything they've learned. And these are Jewish, Jewish girls. What's going to be with them? So he makes this decision to open up a school for them. And it's a very long story, very dramatic story, but just the, the idea of someone opening up a school right after the war, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a crazy, crazy idea. Who would come up with that chimera? But he did it. And indeed, there were hundreds of Jewish girls that were trained in this Beisiakrov, if you will, this school that he founded. He didn't run it, but he had founded it because he had this capacity to see an opportunity to do something when there was a need for something to get done. You have these eight years that he's largely isolated. He is in seclusion. He's lonely. There's no one around to be with him. He's in this barren wasteland of Sweden. And for most of his peers, most of the people that were trained in the yeshiva world in Europe, they go there and that equals a spiritual death sentence for them. For my grandfather, for Saba, this is an opportunity to become someone great. These trying times really bring out different kinds of people. Some people will say, you know what? They throw up their hands in the air. They give a big sigh. They give a krecht and they say, oy vey, this is terrible. I wish I could do something about it. I always think, you know, what would we do if we were in the United States during the Holocaust? Would be, would we be like or Avram Kalmanovich, or Rabbi Weissmandel, to invest Herculean efforts to try to save as many of our Jewish brethren as possible? Or would it be people that ultimately do nothing about it? And I think one of the themes that constantly reappears in my grandfather's life is that he would always take initiative and always take action, always take responsibility, always jump in when there was an opportunity that presented itself. You know, of course, he opened his yeshiva in 1948, in 1967, after the Six-Day War, there was this groundswell of the Chuva movement that happened. The people witnessed a miracle. The nation's on the brink. Everyone assumes that everyone's going to die. It's going to be another Holocaust. The Arab armies are converging, and Israel has no – there's no one there to help it. They have, they have no friends, and they win this stunning victory. And people, they saw, they witnessed the Yad Hashem, they witnessed the hand of God. But they're all secular. They don't know what to do. So my grandfather takes initiative. He starts going from kibbutz to kibbutz, secular kibbutz that wouldn't have been interested in a rabbi talking about Torah. They come and he, and he teaches them. And he actually was Mekarv. He brought dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of Jews back to Torah, back to mitzvos via his outreach efforts. He started writing essays. He would give lectures. He actually, after the Yom Kippur War, he actually traveled to Egypt. To give speeches to, uh, to Jewish soldiers that were, uh, you know, across the Suez Canal in, in Egypt. Again, we see there's an opportunity. He jumps on it. I was reading today the, 
introduction to Aleishur Chelet Sheni, the second volume of Aleishur, and he writes something, again, along these lines. He says, this book, he calls it himself, it's the Shulchan Aruch. It's the organized, codified text of Musr. This is this book. And then he has this whole paragraph. This is just on the second page of the introduction. He has this whole paragraph trying to justify writing it. Why would you write such a book of such scope? And he says, on one hand, there are people who think that everything I'm writing here is so obvious. It's so patently obvious that there's no need to write it. And there's others who are going to say, well, what business do you have to write it? And he says, this is the Torah Shmalpet. This is the oral Torah of the Musar world that everyone knew before the war. And it ceased existing in our world. And I was looking around. Someone's going to write this book, right? And there was no one else there to write it. And the only reason why I write it, I'm a hediot. He calls himself a hediot. A simpleton. A layperson. Why am I jumping ahead to write this book? It's only because greater people than me didn't write it till now. And in this orphan generation, I'm one of the the the, yichidim, the the sole people that are dealing with this kind of Torah, the Torah of Musr, and training students and rearing students in the light of uh, of of this perspective. And it seems to me that the author, i.e. himself, is fulfilling in a place where there is no one, you become someone. That was his life. Whenever there was no one to do something, he said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the one who's going to take responsibility. I'm going to take initiative. I'm going to be the one to make a difference. He opens up a base of Musr. That's something which is very much against the grain. He does it. Even in his 80s, he spearheads, he opens a yeshiva, constantly being active, constantly doing. I think that the, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, I think it presents for all of us an opportunity to step up, an opportunity to make something out of ourselves. This too is something that I, I can only imagine what my grandfather would do now. Now when the whole world is being shaken up, the, the box is shaking Everyone's normal life, everyone's normal day, everyone's normal schedule, everything's upended. Everything's up, the whole world's upended. It's an opportunity to do something great, to influence the world in a profound way. You know, the, the stock market, the economy is tanking. And a lot of people who are the great investors, they know that this is like an opportunity. If you could figure out when the stocks are the cheapest and you buy it then at the bottom and then it goes back up, you make a lot of money. I think that applies in general. Just as there's a sale to a certain degree when everything tanks, there's a spiritual sale available to us today. Everything is tanking. And it's an opportunity for us to step up to the plate. My grandfather would talk often about Rabbi Sol Salanta, the founder of the Muslim movement, what he did during the cholera outbreak of 1848. And the efforts that he took and the task force of yeshiva students that he championed to go help and go save and go work and go be involved and go assist. And he would go from shul to shul on Yom Kippur and make Kiddush in shul, taking initiative, taking leadership. I think the fact that we have an outbreak in the world, it's a pandemic in the world, it's also an opportunity for us to do something special on our own account, make ourselves great, whether it's in areas of chesed, a lot of people have great needs. They're, they're, they can't go to the shopping. They can't 
do normal things, do normal errands, maybe it's an opportunity for us to become great in, in chesed. I have another example. There's innovative opportunities, new ways to teach Torah. Maybe we could learn something we never learned before. We could study something we never studied before. Or we could teach in ways that weren't feasible prior. I know my son, my son Akiva, he should live with me well. He joined this Night Seder America project. Some Rebbe in Passaic, New Jersey, started this, this program. All these kids come in on Zoom from all across the country. And there's a thousand kids and they're learning. They're finishing Masechtas on Zoom. That's not something you could have done a month or two months ago. But this is someone that saw an opportunity and jumped in it. And now there's a thousand kids finishing Masechtas, all thanks to him. I think today we have to realize that this is a spiritual fire sale. Things are cheap. Things are available. Greatness is within our reach. And I think the lesson for my grandfather is, don't say, oh, what business do I have to become great? Who am I? What background do I have? No one told me to, to, to go do this. When we come before the Almighty and we tell him, I didn't become great because no one gave me that push. No one gave me that, that encouragement. No one trained me. No one told me to do it. They're going to say to him, the Almighty is going to say to him, that answer is not valid. Look at the Mashiach. Look at Rabbi Shlomo Wolby. Look where he came from. Look what he did. And how did he do it? When there were opportunities, he jumped on them. Now, there are opportunities for all of us. May we all seize those opportunities, jump on them, and become great ourselves. May his merit protect all of us. May all of us be safe, be healthy, be strong. Have a chakash of a sameach, have a happy, healthy, and kosher Pesach. And may we merit that just as we were initially redeemed and saved during the month of Nisan, during the festival season of Pesach, may we too witness redemption in our times in this month. Thank you for listening. Chakash of a sameach.